just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. I know I have said it before. But in case you did not hear, um, I was in 11 different schools by the 7th grade. And those 11 different schools were in six different school districts. So they did not always align the learning objectives. And so I never had a great teacher like Mrs. Cope to teach me American history. I've learned a lot of things this week. Thank you, Google. Speaking of American history, though... Um, what would you think if I were to ask you, was General George Washington a patriot? You would say, yes. What would you think if I told you that Washington never saluted or placed his hand over his heart and pledged allegiance to the United States flag? Because white stars did not replace the Union Jack until 1777, and the first recorded Pledge of Allegiance was not until 1892. Since General Washington died in 1799, it would have been hard for him to recite a pledge that wouldn't be written for 90 years during the slavery struggle leading to our Civil War. 
the pledge to the flag started as an allegiance to a flag, and then it became identified into the republic, which had liberty and justice for all. It was a pledge to the northern flag rather than the southern flag. But back in 1892, children were instructed to face the flag and they were instructed to reach out towards the flag with their palm down at forehead height. Now, when Italian fascists and Nazis began using a similar salute, the posture changed for school children pledging allegiance to the flag. They were told to face the flag, to put their hand over their heart, I pledge allegiance, and then they would extend their hand towards the flag with their palm up. I pledge allegiance to the flag and to the republic for which it stands. In 1942, the hand would remain over the heart for the entire pledge, if not in a military salute. See, the pledge as it is now recited would not add the words under God until 1954, long after World War II. So if George Washington were resurrected and instructed to join us in the Pledge of Allegiance, he wouldn't know where to start. Yet he was a patriot. Since the poem that became our national anthem was not written until 1812, in the Battle of 1812, Washington also, since he died in 1799, wouldn't know how to begin a Chase County sporting event. See, the point is that flag etiquette is not synonymous with patriotism. And the Mosaic law is not identical to being Jewish. Because Abraham existed before the law. See, Acting Jewish, what does it mean to act like a Jew, was a big problem in the church in the first century. Many people thought you had to do Jewish things in order to follow Christ. So to expose the wrongness of this idea, Paul, in today's text, asked his readers, and he asked us, consider with me the first Jew, Abraham. Now, attitudes towards Jewish nationality and observance continues to be a struggle. To this very year, when a Washington, D.C. politician was disciplined for anti-Jewish statements. Yesterday was a national day of hate towards Jewish people. But when God first cut covenant with Abraham, God made a promise that America has supported in terms of our public policies and many evangelicals claim around the world. Because God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I will bless those who bless you. But who is a Jew? Jewish can be used to describe a religion, 
a descendant group, and many confuse Jew with Israeli. There are many Jews who do not keep kosher, the religious part. And there are some Gentiles who do follow kosher diet, but they're not descendants in a physical sense of Abraham. There are some Jews who live in Israel, but many descendants of Abraham have been distributed throughout the world. As a matter of fact, thank you Google, there are less than one million people in Jerusalem, and only 60% of them identify themselves as Jewish. While there are 1.6 million Jews in New York who identify as Jewish. There are more Jews in New York than there are in Jerusalem by about a 3 to 1 ratio. So what makes a person Jewish? Living in Israel? Being a descendant of Abraham? Keeping kosher laws? If a patriot doesn't have to know the pledge or the anthem, could it be that a descendant of Abraham might not have to keep the Mosaic law? Paul points to some of the things that made Abraham unique, and they are wise for us to know because Abraham did have many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and maybe so are you. Because we become sons of Abraham through faith. The importance of faith is told us in verses 6 through 9 of the um, passage in front of us. See, Abraham had belief before there were rules. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 tells us, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Genesis 15. And Galatians chapter 3 Verse 17 says, the Moses law didn't even come around to 430 years later. So Abraham was not a Jew because he kept the law. Abraham was Jew because he entered covenant with God by faith. The phrase counted to him as righteousness appears six times in our Bible. Two times in the Old Testament and four times in the New Testament by different New Testament writers. According to Galatians 3.17 in front of us, the credit where Abraham believed God and it was credited, that happened 430 years before the law was even given. So Abraham's righteousness was not the result of behaving a certain way. His belief equaling credit is an equation that is well established even in the Old Testament. He had belief. But some of you may be thinking, now I've read in the Bible somewhere about, it wasn't Abraham's belief, but Abraham's behavior that made him righteous. Does James, in James chapter 2, contradict what Paul has just said here in Galatians 3? Well, let's see what James wrote. James writes, you see, faith was active along with Abraham's works. And faith was completed by his works. 
And then verse 23 says, And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. So according to James, it is when his faith acted that it was credited to him as righteousness. I have found that there is a difference between what we believe and how we behave, unfortunately. And once you stake your claim, once you raise your flag as being a Christ follower, it will not take anyone very long until you hear, you're not acting very Christian. If you were Christian, you would be more and less. You've probably heard that if people think of you as a Christian. You're not acting very Christian. So the question becomes, is being Christian a matter of behavior or is being Christian a matter of belief? Since they are so big in this part of the country, you may have heard about the schism within Methodism between the established United Methodists and the restoration movement that is known as the Global Methodist. But you may not know that the three issues of gay marriage, LGBTQIA plus affirmation, and women in ministry are not only dividing the Methodist. They are dividing Baptists, they are dividing the Covenant Church, they are dividing Lutherans, they are dividing Presbyterians, and the Anglican Fellowship, which is known in America as Episcopalian. See, the sides are being drawn in all of these different denominations, and it usually boils down to one side says, well, the Bible says... And the other side says, well, being Christian looks like... And they accept some things that the Bible prohibits. So what makes a person Christian? Is it the way they behave? Is it the way they believe? Is there a disconnect? Is James saying in the verse behind me that righteousness is measured by behavior? Is James contradicting Paul in Galatians 3.6? Is being Christian determined by our belief or by our behavior? And how do belief and behavior interact? Are they simply two sides of the same coin? Or are they more like the horse and the cart? One has to come before the other. The truck and the trailer. They always happen together, but they always happen in a specific order. I had a random dream this week. I have never owned a truck other than an SUV. I have never owned a camper. My parents did, but I haven't. And I have never owned a boat. But I dreamt this week that I was in a large semi-trailer tractor pulling a fifth wheel, pulling a fishing boat that belongs to my friend Randy. And I have no idea what that means other than that only works in one order. The truck has to come first, and the boat has to come last for those three to ever work as a train. And faith 
and behaviors have to happen in the right order. Belief doesn't define the faith, but faith will affect behaviors. See, the order of that things happen is important. And you may want to write down these verses. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God makes a covenant or a promise to Abraham. And how old is Abraham? 75 years old. Genesis 12, 75. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, three chapters later, the promise is restated and belief is attributed to Abraham as righteousness. So when he's 75, God declares him as righteous because of his belief. In Genesis chapter 17, two chapters after that, God reminds Abraham of the promise and he instructs Abraham, hey, I want you to circumcise all the males in your family as a sign that I have called you as a special people. Abe at this time is 99 years old. So 24 years have passed since he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Then in Genesis chapter 21, verse 5, a son is born by the name of Isaac. 25 years after faith had been credited to Abraham. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 22, Isaac is now old enough to carry wood. How old would that be, Casey? At least three in your family? Three-year-olds carry firewood? I'm going to be a little bit generous and say Abraham did not expect Isaac to carry firewood till he was 10. So if we add 10 years to the 25 years, meaning Abraham is now 100 years old, the Isaac event happened 35 years after Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So James is describing the second event. Paul is talking about the first event. And James is saying because the first event was true, that Abraham believed God, Abraham had faith. Because he had faith, he proved his faith by his behavior. So your faith should affect your behavior. And your behavior after experiencing God's truth, will change. But your behavior does not define your discipleship. You aren't more or less Christian because of your behavior. You're more or less Christian because of your faith. And your faith shapes our behavior. Just as the law came 430 years after Abraham's faith, another thousand years passes between the law and the Judaizers who are now trying to wrangle control of the Jewish religion in the day of Paul. And these Jews, 1,000 years after Moses, are now saying, you know, it's to the extent that you obey the rules... It is to only to the extent that you make the sacrifices that you can be a follower of God. But that was never God's intent. Because God gave Abraham righteousness 430 years before the law was ever given. Obedience does not define faith. 
Because we see in verses 10 through 12 that there are limitations of the Mosaic law. The first limitation is that the law demands our performance. At the first part of verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law. If you rely on works, it brings a curse. Because underline that word do at the very end of verse 10. If you rely on what you do, it is a curse that brings death. The law demands performance. The second limitation of the law is that the law demands complete performance. Notice the words abide by all things. See, disobedience to any point of the law is like taking a fentanyl-laced drug. It doesn't matter what you thought you were taking. It doesn't matter what it was cut with. It doesn't matter how often you have taken that other drug before. One act of disobedience is like one fatal dose of a killer drug. And if we do not completely obey all of the law, we fall under death. Because the law does not only demand performance, it doesn't only demand complete performance, it also demands continual complete performance. Where the ESV and New American Standard says, abide by, the New International Version follows the King James by using the word continue in. And the New Living Translation drills down a little bit by translating this as you have to observe and obey completely. You must never let up in your obedience. Now, men, I know you love your wife. And you love your wife completely. And you love your life more than not. But continual, complete performance is a curse. Because we don't measure up to that standard. And because no one can measure up to that standard of performance, complete performance, continual performance, verse 11 tells us, so now it's apparent to us that the law does not save. The standard that is created by the first three limitations leads us to a clear conclusion that no one finds justification by the law. Taking pills made of fruits and vegetables or drinking V8 may give you energy. Sleeping on Giza sheets or a sleep number bed or taking a supplement may contribute to waking refreshed. But you will never take enough supplements to avoid death. And we will never reach the level of obedience necessary to avoid the curse. You can never achieve your way into God's kingdom. Now, after these last few verses, you may be feeling kind of down. But wait, it gets worse. See, we're not only helpless, we are cursed. But Galatians 3, 13 through 16 tells us that God in His grace exchanges blessing 
for the curse that we are under when we can't obey the law. See, the law reveals that we are cursed, that we are imperfect, that we fall short. The failures of trying to live good deeds leads us down a path of despair. And now it's what makes the gospel of Jesus so glorious. What we cannot do or achieve, He has done for us if we only believe, rely upon it. Amen? See, the Lenten season is for us an intentional reflection upon our cursed condition and our need for blessing that only comes through the descendant of Abraham, the Messiah Jesus. Because Christ exchanges our curse for that of blessing in verse 13. Verse 13 is a very succinct uh, description of substitutionary or vicarious atonement. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ doesn't just set an example of goodness or sacrifice. He takes our place just as the blood of the lamb on the doorpost in Exodus caused the death angel to pass over the firstborn of the household. Our guilt is transferred to Jesus in becoming a curse for us so that we might be redeemed from being under the curse. The blessing that God established in covenant with Abraham's descendants through an offspring, verses 14 through 16, makes it clear that Jesus is the offspring that was spoken about back in Genesis 12. It makes the promise that through your offspring there will be blessing. Now that becomes available to all through faith. Both the biological descendants of Abraham and the spiritual descendants of Abraham are sons through faith in Jesus' blessing that exchanges our curse. And that, my friend, is good news. That is gospel. Even though we were cursed, Jesus took that for us if we believe in him. Now, in the last couple of verses to kind of tie this together, belief comes first, then the law was limited, and then there's an exchange of, of, prom- of blessing for curse. I want us to think for a few moments about that promise. In verses 17 through 18, it gives us an example of how a promise remains in place regardless of what happens afterwards. He says that just because there's a curse, that never annuls the original promise that God made. God made a promise, Abraham, through one of your descendants, all the world will be blessed. And just because mankind has messed it up since then, that in no way annuls the original covenant. Now, I am not going to try to defend every thought, word, or deed that has been done in the name of Christ. This month is recognized as Black History Month, and I do not deny that some slaves were treated horrendously by some owners. 
Some communities in the religious South establish inhumane barriers to opportunities, often done in the name of Christianity. Next month will be highlighted as Earth Month. And we will be reminded that some have polluted and abused the resources that God has entrusted to us in pursuit of their God, the Almighty Dollar. There have been heretics who were burned alive, done in the name of Christianity. Those who are presumed to participate in witchcraft, or more recently, certain behaviors outside of the God-ordained union of man and wife, have suffered in many ways at the hands of people who are acting in the name of God. See, the law-breaking by all of these humans does not make the promise void. The promise is that through one of Abraham's descendants, the Messiah Jesus Christ, our curse can be exchanged for blessing irregardless of how other people have messed it up in the meantime. The inheritance of the promise, Abraham's offspring taking our curse, is never annulled or voided by mankind's behavior. It comes really practical for us in these words. Your promised inheritance is not dependent upon how well or how poorly you treat other people. You can't achieve it by anything you may do. But you can receive it by belief in what was promised. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You can believe the promise that Jesus will give you blessing by taking your curse. It's not our behaviors that make us Christian. It's our faith. But our behaviors should reflect our faith. We're going to gather together around the Lord's table. And we are going to share in the bread and the wine as a testament of our belief in what Jesus 